Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. We've been looking at ideas in recent episodes which speak into various elements of ministry to others, but most importantly, they also provide a heap of insight about the heart of a restorative God. That word restorative is important to note as we consider what Jesus is going to say now. Our passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. To set the scene, let's consider a few quick things. First, for the second and only other time, the church is mentioned by Jesus in this teaching. The last time was in Matthew chapter 16, which we explored way back in episode 55. So this teaching is related to relationships in Christ's messianic community. And since the church is the bride of Christ, and he only uses that specific word twice to describe its foundations and its relationships, then we really should be taking notice of this passage and understanding and practicing it well. Second, it's incredibly clear in all of Scripture that Jesus knows the value and power of unity. In fact, through the Old Testament, I believe we can make the case that Jesus saw firsthand the good and the bad that was possible in unity. Consider Genesis 11. There we see the unity of humanity in play as they work together to do something of pagan significance. And it was working really well too. We pick up God's response from verses 5 to 7. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Let us, this is why I refer to Jesus seeing this firsthand here, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. There is power when people unify for one cause and when everybody is speaking the same language and even bad things are accomplished with people in that place. To save them from themselves in Genesis, God actually needed to do something to mess with this dynamic. Thankfully, unity achieves much more when focused on the good. And Psalm 133 shows us that when God's people dwell in a place of unity, when they are committed together for God's agenda on the earth, they attract His blessing and life forevermore. There are significant warnings against pursuing an intentionally divisive stance as well, and Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19 presents an ominous one. These things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among brothers. So there is power in unity, and there is blessing in pursuing it in godly endeavors. And there is sufficient power in the opposite stance to repel God from our lives with equal force. It's clear that the God of the Old Testament placed high value on unity. 
So when Jesus spoke about his people and their relationships, this was a time to sit up and take notice for the disciples. It should now be clear to us that Jesus was incredibly attentive to the relationships believers were to have among themselves, and that unity, love, and forgiveness were to be hallmarks of the Ecclesia, the Church of Jesus Christ. So let's consider some of the details. Jesus opens like this, if a brother or sister sins against you. The Greek word being used here means to miss the mark, and Romans tells us that this describes the state of every human being. This word was used extensively in the New Testament to speak of sin against God. It also speaks of the sinful actions of fallen angels and occasionally of significant sinful acts, such as the sin unto death, which is spoken of in the Gospels. More commonly, it speaks of the ongoing, unrepentant, offensive-before-God sort of sin. When Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant being wounded for our transgressions, the Hebrew word being used there has a very similar meaning. So when Jesus speaks of a sinful brother, we need to understand that we are dealing with something pretty serious, and if it's present, there is certainly grounds for dealing with it. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that such things must be addressed in church life. But we need to be really aware of what we are dealing with before creating discord and taking offense. The sort of thing that is being dealt with here is serious sin. If it is clearly not trivial stuff, if someone is in a position of unrepentant, rebellious sin, then power on. If not, the very next passage in Matthew's account deals with that part. Simply forgive, let it go, 70 times 7. So we're dealing with serious, non-trivial stuff in the church here. And what's the first point of call with it, according to Jesus? Take it to the elders or powers that be. Publish it on Facebook to warn everybody else. Make it a point in the next congregational meeting? Well, no. At least not yet. Actually, let me qualify that. First, never take disputes to social media. That never turns out well and harms all sides of a situation. Many people have learned the hard way that things put online is out there forever. It's just not a good presentation of your faith. But also, some matters legally call us to act a little bit differently. Sexual sin being pointed out as Jesus prescribes it is expected. If there's affairs or other things going on, these need to be addressed, and they can be in the church if we follow the way Jesus tells us. But hear me carefully here, and picture this, if you will, as a verbal flowchart. If that sexual sin involves an unwilling or coerced person, or if it involves a minor, or if it involves something clearly abusive or exploitive, the flowchart does not move on to the next scriptural point I'm about to speak into. It actually goes straight to the law. Here in Australia, every person who works with children is a mandatory reporter if they hear of such activity. If you encounter it and are unsure on how to address it, speak with the child protection officer of your church or the pastor if you don't have one. For those listening all over the world, check with your local authorities on what you need to do also. Are we ignoring Jesus here? No, I don't believe so. The victims of such things need to be protected first and foremost, and there is always scope for pastoral work with the potential offender outside of the congregational setting. Outside of that hopefully unlikely setting, consider what Jesus says here. He says to go and point it out. In the Greek, go is hupago. It means to take immediate, humble action by stealth. In other words, if something comes up, don't let it fester. Instead, take up the immediate authority you have in pointing it out. The stealth part is about going under the radar with it all and dealing with the problem discreetly and quietly. 
This is one of those times Jesus had in mind when he said, your left hand should not know what your right hand is doing. The issue must not be mentioned with any other person until you have gone to the offender. Otherwise, you are sowing discord and doing the church a significant disservice. To point out the fault is the word elenko. This is the act of bringing conviction to a situation. It is presenting sufficient evidence that the actions in question are sinful and require a change in stance or repentance. This must not be subjective. There needs to be the objectivity of scriptural insight in order for you to be doing this, with the hope the offender will see what you see and is moved from their own conviction to address this sin in their life. I would actually suggest that if you cannot produce scripture to make your point, then it's not sin to be dealt with in this way. And as you go and as you point, check your motives. Jesus tells us the aim of the exercise is to gain the person being addressed. The Greek word kodano means to make a profit as the result of significant caring investments. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he writes this, For though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant to all, that I might gain the more. In other words, through a life of careful missional investment, he is hopeful of an experience that is to heaven's profit. Proverbs 27 verse 6 tells us that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. If you are seeking to gain, and if you are invested, then hopefully it's because you are aiming to be a friendly and restorative presence who is actively seeking their good as well as the good of the church. So the whole thought that Jesus is presenting so far is this. If you are convinced that a fellow church member is in a position of active, unrepentant sin, either deliberately towards yourself or towards the church as a whole, or against God and you are convinced this requires the blood of Christ to make it right, then don't delay, but go with discretion and humility to that person and urgently point the issue out, scripturally, prayerfully, and hopefully, in order to bring that person to a place of repentance and restoration. If it's something you feel strongly about, you are to make the required investment into the situation and expect it to be a profitable exercise. However, a question will no doubt rise up at this point. What if your convictions are falling on deaf ears, but you remain convinced there is something to urgently address? Well, then and only then do others get involved. And by others, Jesus says one or two. Not a whole Bible study group or any other group expression, just one or two. Even at this point, Jesus is still calling for discretion and restoration. At any point where the person agrees with you that an error or offense exists and they begin the process of putting things right, it is supposed to be the end of the matter. However, history has told me that this is not always the end of a matter. And thankfully, Jesus gives us one final step and one last plea for restorative action. It's here between steps 2 and 3 that Jesus uses Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 to 20. That particular passage backs up what Jesus is saying, but sounds a rather ominous warning for us as well. Here's what Jesus is quoting in context. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sins at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition, 
And behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then shall you do to him as he had thought to have done to his brother. So shall you put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. In other words, between making it a personal matter and a church matter, get all your theological, scriptural, factual, and emotional ducks in a row. Once those are in order, bring the one or two with you to the person in question. After that, if it appears the matter is still not resolved, then and only then does it become a matter for the ecclesia to consider. Even then, does this necessarily mean taking it before potentially hundreds or even thousands of people in your local congregation? Or perhaps the congregational quarterly meeting? No, I believe in today's context, the eldership or leadership group of a church would actually suffice. Bear in mind, the whole congregation in the time Matthew was written met in a home. So there would really only be about a dozen or so people involved in the process back then anyway. Jesus goes on to tell us that it may be necessary for the church to take the drastic action of removing the person from community. Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish Christians, so the reference to treating them like tax collectors and pagans is pretty strong. Tax collectors were sellouts in Jewish community, leaning into the benefits of Rome while exploiting God's people. Pagans is anyone not in their faith, someone who is clearly not a believer. Jesus tells us here in no uncertain terms that an intentionally sinful person who will not consider the faithful friend who will point out sin in them, or the faithful and caring witness, or even the wisdom of the crowd and collective mind of Christ, which is the church, then treat them like an unbeliever. Revoke their membership at the very least. This alone can make a huge difference in some congregations. But removing their influence and presence for a time may also need to be an option. This did occur in at least one New Testament church. In 1 Corinthians 5, it was necessary because a man was involved in unrepentant and pretty depraved sexual sin. Paul tells them in verse 5 to expel him and hand him over to Satan until he came to repentance. But if you slip over to 2 Corinthians, you will see evidence of restoration even out of that messy situation because it appears they've gone and put the matter right. I believe restoration in the church is always possible. And removal must not be viewed as a forever thing. Now, let's read on a little more from verses 18 to 20. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. For the second time, Jesus mentions the church, but also at the same time talks about the church having the power of binding and loosing. I spoke into this in an isolated thought in episode 56. You can refer back to that in your own time. Its use here further reinforces the order that the church is supposed to have. Where there is sin, the church is called to a ministry of binding. Where there is repentance, the church is called to a ministry of loosing. The divided church can skew anywhere from chaos to control, and the ministry of binding to chaos and loosing to control keeps the church in an ongoing sweet spot of unity and order. The lesson is complete with a wonderful promise for those who strive for restoration and unity. When two or more are gathered in this spirit in the name of Jesus, he would be there. And in this comment, we are presented with a huge thought about the ministry of Christ in the church. The rabbis of the time had a saying that when 10 people sit together and occupy themselves with the Torah, the Shekinah abides among them. 
That word Shekinah means the tangible glory of God's presence. But in this passage, Jesus makes some significant changes to that way of thinking. He replaces the Torah as the object of attention with himself and his name. He then replaces the word glory or Shekinah with his own presence. And he replaces the scholarly gathering of 10 with simply any church member who will gather with others. It was a huge statement about himself in relation to the unified church. When the church gathers in the right frame of mind, in his name, no matter how small that community might be, the manifest presence of Jesus rests over that people. So let's reflect on all that. This process of maintaining purity and unity that Jesus gives us is pretty amazing. You could write it out on a flowchart and it would make perfect sense. You can see rights and responsibilities for church members. You can see the need of being motivated for restoration. You can see the wonderful outcome of the glory of Jesus all over the healthy and ordered church. But boy, do we mess it up at times. We don't always see this process play out with fidelity. We take issues sideways far too often, and we don't tend to be all that restorative in our motives. We would sooner leave the church and sever community than forgive. And we would sooner leave the church and sever community than repent too. I get it. When others sin against us, it hurts. But we are called by Jesus to respond in grace and faithfulness to his word. We are called to bind and correct. We are called to loose and restore. And in these ministry expressions, Jesus is glorified. Are you in a position of hurt at the moment? What do you need to do to forgive? What steps do you need to take to get from hurt to healing? What others in the church do you need help from at this time? Be brave and address the issue as Jesus calls you to. I will add that if you are a victim of sinful abuse in one way or another, ensure that you are properly supported and advocated for. I even believe step one of confronting a sinner is not your burden to carry. If this is your reality, I pray that the presence of Jesus rests on you even now and that you know his power and grace in a profound way. Are you in a position of sin at the moment? Are you being spoken to by others in the church about this? My experience is that they can't all be wrong. Would you please prayerfully consider the wisdom that is in the church and submit to correction before it's too late? Are you a church leader navigating people in these places? I know from experience that these things are never pretty and they don't always turn out as we would want them to be. Can I simply encourage you to remain a non-anxious presence and lean into the ministry of binding and loosing that you have? Don't avoid the issue. We both know that it will only escalate if you do. Friend, I pray that you find order in your faith, no matter where you are coming from at this time. May you find the grace and strength to forgive, to restore, to bring order, and if necessary, to listen and repent. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.